Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. We're talking about healthcare and I'm joined by Jonathan Murphy, who is the boss of Assura. Jonathan, good morning. Good to see you. Thank you for making the trip down to London today. Hope the breakfast wasn't too awful on the trains. How has the last couple of years treated Assura? Tell us a little bit about what's been keeping you up at night over the last year and a half, over the course of the pandemic. Yeah, well, well first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here and, and, and no trouble at all. It's always always a pleasure to come down to London to, uh, to see people. So very, very happy to make the journey. So yeah, so for, I mean, like every business, of course, we've had some real challenges over the last two years, you know, responding to the pandemic, moving to uh, complete remote working, the nature of our buildings, which are all medical centers. So literally overnight, the way they were being used was completely transformed. So we had to sort of sort of leap into action, if you like, to try and help our, our customers. How might they want to use those buildings differently? Could we reconfigure some of that space for them? Yeah. Could we help them with access issues, et cetera? So there was a real challenge there and a lot of, a lot of effort by the team to support our customers wherever we could. And then we also have a big construction side. So we've got a big development arm. And obviously, building sites had to change the way they worked, et cetera. So there were some real challenges. But really, if you think about the pandemic, what it highlighted was how absolutely essential it is to have good quality healthcare in the community. You know, access to hospitals is a real challenge during COVID. Yeah. So our centers became even more important than they were before. And, so, and what are those centers, Jonathan? So they GP surgeries, health, what, what, describe what they are. You've got 625 properties nationwide, so yeah. nationwide business. What does that range from? We're just talking local GP surgeries or community healthcare or, or other things like that. Yeah, involves. so I mean, yeah, predominantly GP surgeries, is the, that's the primary focus. So if you look at the 625, the vast majority of those you would describe as a traditional GP surgery. So, But within that, it normally would be more than just the doctors. So you would have a pharmacist on site. You'd probably have treatment rooms available so you could see a physiotherapist. There might be a minor surgery. So we're not talking about really small centres. We're talking about a range of services available from a broad centre. And then we have other assets as well. So dialysis uh, centres, we do have some um, We have some diagnostic centres, et cetera, and we do have a few private facilities in there as well. So it's, it's, it's a reasonable range of, of facilities. Yeah, and, and in terms of your, your customers, it's essentially a, a large amount of GP surgeries that the, essentially under, underpinned underwritten by the NHS. That's right. So yeah, so so all our customers are are the GPs themselves. So traditionally they operate in partnership models. So they are personally our our customers, but they are contracted by the NHS and so all the rents that they have to pay are actually guaranteed under law by the NHS. So possibly possibly the most secure tenant base anywhere <laughs> in the commercial property landscape. Well, I think you could probably say that the very last thing that the government is going to breach is is a, is the payment on our health facilities, isn't it? So yeah, absolutely. So good for your investors. I mean, do people recognize the strength of that of that income stream? I'm just thinking about how how the shares have performed, how yep. the business has performed, because you've had substantial income growth over the last few years. You've brought the cost of debt down almost by a quarter, and and you're distributing almost a four percent dividend, which you know for essentially risk free income is is astonishing. Yes, yeah, so, I mean clearly our investors have had a uh, have had a really positive ride in, into over recent years, benefiting from the growth in the business. And also the, the, that really secure underpin to the income. Is it really appreciated by the market? That's a really good question. Um, you know, 4% dividend yield 
for government-backed income, I think, is is a fantastic return. But also, it's not just that; it's also our track record of growth. So we've yeah. we've got a fantastic track record of identifying new facilities. There's it's a massively fragmented market. There's lots of opportunity for us to acquire more assets. Hmm. There's um, have, you, have, have you been aggressive enough, though, Jonathan? I mean, that's a good could, question. Could people say that you you know you've you perhaps have been a bit slow off the mark, and you you could have been a bit more aggressive stepping into yeah. some of the cracks that have opened up in the high street over the last few years is that something that what do you think about that yeah i mean i mean we have we have doubled the size of the business in the last 5 years so we have grown the portfolio significantly we're now at a you know 2 and a half billion pound portfolio when i first joined the business you know which is 8 years ago we were sub 1 billion so we've grown we have grown could we have been more aggressive yes we possibly could have been we do get sometimes investors say we'd like to invest more so could you move faster mm. but the problem we have is it's not about how fast we can move it's about how fast the nhs can move yeah. so everything is paid for by the nhs so they have to agree every single deal so every time we do any letting, any time we buy any building and have an agreement with a tenant, it has to go through a full NHS approval process, which is often at le- definitely months and can be years. So yeah. we can only move so fast as our customer ultimately, which is the NHS. Yeah. But there is, you're absolutely right, there's a gap. You know, in terms of more healthcare delivery, there's no question the government just announced last week that they were looking to do more diagnostics and testing on the high street or in the community. We're very keen to play our part in supporting that. So mm. it's an area we're absolutely looking to expand. And, and this is one of the areas, isn't it, where England is a little bit behind many other countries in Europe on the provision of, of healthcare and how we differentiate between what's undertaken in the community and what you have to go to hospital for and essentially it just strikes me sometimes that that we don't fully understand the concept that people should only go to hospital as a real last resort Mm. and and yet people i mean you know my own parents and and my own family just friends where you're, you're going to hospital to go have some sort of test done that you could easily go and do in some sort of community facility, presumably at a, a much lower cost. Absolutely. I mean, this is a real problem for us as a country. So we do have a lot of outdated facilities. So, you know, if I take my GP surgery, for example, it's a very outdated building. It's over 100 years old. You can't have a blood test done in that centre. If I want a blood test, I have to go to the local hospital. I have to make an appointment, go to the hospital, the test, then come back to the GP surgery. I need to go back to them. Mm. It's a really inefficient model. And on the on the NHS's own structures, financially, it's two to three times more expensive for you to visit a hostel than a GP. So we're absolutely behind the curve. So you could be saving about two thirds of, of the cost of, of many consultations by doing them in the community. Yes, it's a complete financial no-brainer. The problem we have is a structural one. So within the NHS, the way it works is the hospital budget is one pot and the GP budget is another pot. So to spend money in one to save money in another pot is a really difficult conversation. And I know that sounds really simple thing to fix, but that is a lot of the problems. I mean, do you think policymakers should look at some kind of modernization here to make this more efficient. Yeah, and and to be fair to the NHS, this is something they're working on. So they've got this concept called integrated care systems, which is all about the hospitals and the GPs and the pharmacists and social care working together. So they are... They've got the right idea. They're working on it. But at the moment, it's still very Mm. much concept. If that comes through fantastic for us as a country and also fantastic for Assure as a business because we are ideally placed obviously to be able to support that move out of hospital. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing as well is the role of 
pharmacists, the role mm. of optometrists, the role of dentists and, and other practitioners that all occupy the high street and the way in which we don't really seem to use these guys mm. quite as efficiently as we could be. Yeah, so our model is, is that these are very much run separately. A more traditional model that you might see on the continent would be a, an integrated centre. All of these facilities were available under one roof, similar in the United States. You would go to one centre to get all of these treatments. Mm. And that is a model I think you might see emerging as a result of some of these changes. But it's, it's early days, but the potential is, is, is really huge. And what is the potential for, I guess, for growth of primary healthcare in town centres? So we've obviously seen the death of fast fashion, the collapse mm. of Topshop, Gap closing down short stores and, and, and other other big brands as well, Abercrombie and Fitch and, and, and others, both high end and, and low end. So there's a lot more gaps on the high street than there was. And people seem to be taking healthcare a bit more seriously than they perhaps have done in the past. Do you think there's scope for the sorts of facilities that you run for primary healthcare to become more of an anchor tenant in more town centres? Yeah, there's there's absolutely a role for healthcare to play in terms of regenerating the high street. There's no question. And and we have got a, a you know a number of schemes that we're working on at the moment where we are repurposing retail space into healthcare. So tell us about some of those. So it's it's not easy though, would be would be my, my first comment. There's a there's a lot of logistical challenges in terms of the actual space. Clinical space and retail space are not the same thing. There are requirements on air change quality you need to, to adhere to, size of rooms, clinical standards. So it's not an easy one. But it, is, it definitely has massive potential. We're working on a big scheme at the moment in Plymouth, for example, where we are, you know, uh, a redundant retail space in a shopping centre is going to be converted into a state-of-the-art medical centre, be a fantastic asset for the local town uh, and will attract footfall to the shopping centre, the, the other half of it. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a model that's got legs, no question. And I think you could see a lot more of this type of activity. It's not a quick win because working with the NHS is a complicated process and does take time to work through. So it's definitely part of the solution, but it's not going to be a, a really short-term one. It's more of a medium-term play. Mm. And, and do you think there's opportunity for local authorities to get a bit more involved with these sorts of opportunities? We had Chris Oglesby from Bruntwood, boss of Bruntwood on mm -hmm. um, a couple of months back, and he was talking very passionately about some of the town centre regen that Bruntwood are undertaking in the northwest some fascinating projects that, that they're involved with. Is that the sort of stuff that Asura could see itself getting involved with, do you think? Yeah, I, th I think a, a partnership with someone like a Bruntwood and, and local authorities to deliver healthcare solutions on the high street is, is, a, is a really good model. It's one that we have had a number of conversations about, but so far we haven't got any live projects that we're working mm. on. So I think, yeah, there's definitely scope for us to do more working with local authorities and, and working with other property developers. Where do you sit on the digital side? Because from my own experience, and I know the team we have here at Blackstock, we all, we all have private healthcare insurance, but we all try and avoid going mm. to the GP where we can. And I'd always much rather do something over a, a, an app or a, or a video call. Are you worried that a generation of people coming through now is essentially going to want to avoid the GP surgery at all costs yeah. and do it on their phone? Are you worried that you might end up you know, with a bunch of stranded assets because everyone's 
Ah, Jonathan, I'd rather sit at home and use my app. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I mean, clearly this is a big trend. And, and, and we saw a complete shift in terms of the way that people use medical services during COVID, didn't we? So, you know, our surgeries were delivering 90% of their consultations face-to-face pre-COVID. Then mm. literally overnight that went to 10 So we had a complete turnaround in terms of the way services were delivered. And now I think things are stabilizing. uh, And in fact, if anything, there seems to be more demand now for the return of face-to-face consultations. So will we have a mixed economy going forward, a multi-channel economy or whatever words you want to use? Absolutely. So will our buildings need to be different? Hybrid health. Will they need to be flexible? Will we need to have video consulting facilities within a site? Absolutely, we will. Mm. But what I would say, though, is you know we have 625 buildings. There are 9,000 medical centres in the UK. So within those centres, the ones that really struggled with the digital challenge were the converted Victorian terraced houses. And there are still thousands of those out there in use. So those are going to have to be replaced faster. So actually, yes, we're going to monitor the trend. Yes, this is a long-term trend, but this is not something that concerns us for our assets. But I think because ours are the more well-equipped, the easier to adapt, they can have air change requirements accommodated. They can deal with social distancing. Whereas some of those older converted residential premises, frankly, you know, they need to be bulldozed and they ne- that needs to be done soon. Mm. And what are some of the things that we should be looking to use these facilities for that we don't currently use them for? So, I mean, the full range of all those basic things that you, you have to go to hospital for should be done in a GP surgery. So all routine tests and diagnostics absolutely should be done. You should have a pharmacy consultation on site. You should have physiotherapy on site. You know, being referred to a consultant for a basic you know, backache, et cetera, just doesn't make sense. It should all be able to be treated in a community centre. So you should have those things there. The other thing I would highlight is another area that we're getting increasingly involved with, which is non-clinical interventions, because there's actually a body of research which says that a lot of people attend a GP for social rather than medical reasons because they're feeling isolated, they're feeling mm. excluded, they've got mental health issues. So actually, sometimes the answer is to have counselling services available We have been very active supporting through our community fund. We support a lot of groups which actually support patients. So things like gardening clubs, you know, the men's sheds movement, walking groups. Sometimes, you know, that's the right answer rather than an appointment with the GP. So that whole world of what the NHS calls social prescribing is also a really important part of the solution. And that's an area that we see really crucial for us going forward. And it's we really want to support that growth. Mm. And in terms of, I guess, in terms of the potential saving to the NHS of bringing more of these things to the high street, what would that be? Has anyone done any maths on that? Yes. I mean, yeah, the NHS has their own data that they use. And very simplistically, you know, the cost of an A&E consultation versus the cost of a GP consultation is three to four times higher using their own their own statistics. So clearly, any impact you can have on presentation at A&E is a massive saving for the NHS. So there clearly are very significant savings in terms of the NHS admin and efficiency and, and cost of time. But also bear in mind, you know, efficiency of treatment. 
So if you can have your test and diagnosis done faster, mm. then the health outcome for that is going to be significantly better. If you're dealing with a clinician that knows you, knows your family, knows your family history, the chances of them spotting that really unusual response to a test is much higher. So there are real clinical benefits as well in certain areas to things being treated out of a hospital and, and in a community setting. Mm. And, and thinking about the future, what does the surgery of the future look like? I know you've done a bit of thinking on this already, but obviously post-pandemic, everyone's now thinking about how you integrate video calling into the walls, yeah. sensors on the floors, all sorts of other things that, that people are currently inventing. How are you as a business going to be looking to adapt to that? Yeah, so we had we had a surgery of the future concept that we we uh, we launched actually pre-COVID that we shared with the NHS and it was extremely well received. They really liked the ideas and it was about a, a different way of thinking through the design. You know, some of the things you might think were not that radical. So, for example, removing the reception, removing the reception desk, having digital check-in. Many people would like to remove the receptionist and their own local GP says, yeah, I, exactly. I, I certainly would in Highbury. <laughs> well, well, the idea was that you, you would have someone that would guide you around the facility rather than this sort of barrier to, to receiving treatment, breaking down some of those barriers between the clinician and the patient, mm. you know, using some outdoor space. So we had an outdoor consulting room as one of our concepts and also space that was really flexible that could be used for consultations, but also could be used for treatment as well. So the ability to adapt and modify with obviously some digital elements included. So we had, you know, we had uh, pods in the reception area for in, in the entrance area. So you could do some self-diagnosis and some self-tests as well. So those sorts of concepts, but this was all pre-COVID. So we're currently updating that design. We've been engaging with a, with a number of practices about how they think we can take it to the next level. So we're continually looking to evolve and, and move that on because we think, you know, we do need to change the way we deliver healthcare. There's no question. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting subject area. And I think certainly there'll be, there'll be certain, a number of people listening to this on the tech side that, that might have some some views as well. And from an investment perspective, obviously there's been a lot of talk recently around inflation and in mm. the UK around stagflation. Your business is, is, I mean, it's fair to say it's a pretty counter-cyclical business model. Where do you see that investor sentiment taking you over the next couple of years? Because clearly it is a pretty good inflation hedge. You've got average leases of over 11 years. Yeah, You've got 620 odd buildings how many different tenants across those buildings? So we've got over 1,100 tenants across those buildings. The, you know, 85% of that is is effectively government-backed. So mm. we, we've got you know rock-solid government income. We've got very solid inflationary growth built into our to our rent roll. Some of it direct, some yeah. of it indirect. But we've we you know we've got a good track record of delivering a growing rent roll. Obviously, all our debt is fixed, so that's and a what cap was cost. what was the rationale there? Because again, looking through your your recent trading update, that is something you you've made a, a huge impact on mm. possibly because you were previously the cfo <laughs> so you may be quite quite attuned to that but you've halved the leverage of the business in recent years and, and you've shifted to to unsecured lending when we looked at the structure of the business we thought that there was a better balance than what we had so you know we could have less debt and then be less risk for our equity investors but we could also bring down the cost of our debt as a result so we've had a complete shift when secured got an a minus investment grade from fitch so we've got you know gold standard if you like in terms of financing you know we we recently uh, went out and launched our first sustainable bond which mm. we did this year we raised 300 million pounds at 1.62% 
And we did that at a margin that was significantly inside um, what British land were able to raise, which given where we started from, you know, is, is a testament to the strength of the business and how far we've moved things on. So absolutely, we now have access to the deepest pool of capital there is, you know, the bond market. We can uh, access any uh, various types of, of debt. It's all unsecured. And it's now very competitively priced point. So we think that's the right balance. We think a little bit less risk from our investors. So we give up a little bit of return. So that's a challenge we have because some investors say, well, surely you can afford to have a higher gearing ratio in this business. You know, why not have 50, 55%? But we're very comfortable. We think lower gives us a lower cost of debt and less volatility over the longer term. So it's the right balance, we think, for the business. Mm. And in terms of development, what is the current pipeline? How much are you looking to to expand by over the next couple of years? Yeah, so development is a really important part for us. So, I mean, it also plays into that whole surgery of the future question because by building new stock is how you can test new ideas. You can bring new ways of delivery both on the sustainability side and on a design side to play so you know if we take one example last year we actually delivered the uk's first dementia friendly medical center so what we did we have a long-standing charity relationship with dementia uk yeah and we work with them on a design guide to make our building as friendly as possible to anyone with any kind of cognitive disorder and you know simple things like the color scheme the the shape you know quality signage, different types of doors for different uses so people don't get confused. That kind of testing and, and innovation, that's something we're really proud of. And that development side is now uh, you know, really strong. We've got a £480 million development pipeline at the moment, which is far and away the largest we've ever had in the, in the business's history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had a, a number of people on over the last year or two talking about the expansion in senior living and that mm-hmm. is also obviously one of the areas there that the investors are focusing on in terms of catering to, to people with dementia and other such additions. Is there an opportunity, do you think, for for co-location of what you do with some of those sorts of resi offerings? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of logic in that, actually. So it, bizarrely, we actually only have one site, which I would call a senior, a senior village or yeah, a campus. Yeah. We've only got one where we've got those range of facilities on one site. And you'd think that was much more common because there's a lot of logic to them being co-located. And I think that there definitely is scope for further growth along those lines because, you know, to have senior living but also to have care facilities next door to a GP surgery, you know, is is a logical extension. So I, I, I absolutely think there's the scope and there's there's massive demand, as you know, from speaking to those other investors. You know, senior living is a, is a massively under invested space in the UK versus global metrics, as you know, as we are with with primary care. So there's some definite synergies there. Yeah, yeah. I guess thinking about some of the challenges that you're facing at the minute, clearly, as we've been seeing over recent months with the supply chain issues, staffing issues everywhere, from social care to mm-hmm. Uber drivers, everybody seemingly quitting the UK. How much of a barrier is that going to be to your own growth and, and to the work that gets done in your buildings, do you think? Yeah, so I mean, in, in terms of a short-term challenge, it's not so much a short-term challenge, but it's definitely an underlying pressure. So if we look at our buildings uh, and the buildings we're constructing, those supply chain issues you reference, we are seeing delays on all of our sites. So we are running, you know, six to 
to 10 weeks behind on some of our build programs. And our build programs are typically 14 to 18 months. So not massive, but mm. it's definitely an issue. The bigger issue really for the NHS in general is, is workforce. You know, they, they have a target to hire 5,000 new GPs, but actually the number of GPs is falling rather than increasing. And clearly long-term as a country, we absolutely need more GPs to support, you know, to support more out of hospital care. That is a real challenge for the long-term potential for the business. But don't forget, we have the larger, more modern centres. So we don't tend to see so many shortages in our centres. It tends to be the very small ones where there's one, two, three GPs working at a site which really struggle from that work for a shortage. Mm. But presumably there, there is a way in which we can potentially use public assets a bit more efficiently. Mm. So where we've got town centres, we've got government land, NHS land, land owned by different government departments, some of that surely must be right for conversion, right for reuse. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, we have a really good track record with the NHS and local authorities at using their surplus land for medical centres. That's a very rich source of opportunities for us because, you know, by bringing in, we operate, a, everything we do is done on a cost plus model. So from the NHS point of view, if they give us discounted land, we deliver the centre for, for for a lower cost at the end. Yeah. So it's it's, a, it's an old fashioned win-win, if you like. So yeah, there's, there's absolutely opportunities to make better use of uh, of some of those um, you know, publicly owned assets. Yeah, I would have thought that there'd be a lot of councils that would bite your hand off for that. Maybe yeah. that's a bit of a roadshow with some councils could be... Yes, well, but the problem we have is would they rather give it to us at a discount to build a medical centre or would they rather sell it at a premium to a housing developer? And they often take the cash now rather than the long-term benefit. So that's the issue you have in that one. That's one of the perennial challenges, I guess, dealing with, with anybody. I mean, just finishing up, I'm interested in how you've dealt thinking about workforce, how you've dealt mm. with the pandemic, with your own team. Clearly, hybrid health is something that, that people have got to grips with. But how has your own, as a, as a, as a boss of a, of a pretty large business, how have you been mobilizing people? Tell us a little bit about how the, uh, the, the culture of Assura has responded to things over the last couple of years. What what can people learn from what you've what you've done? Yes, I mean clearly, you know, it, it's it's a very tough transition for everyone, and we were very conscious that we didn't really have any home working or flexible working beforehand. It was a complete overnight shift. People lost that sense of support that they got from their coworkers and from, and from that team environment. So we made it very clear to people that we wanted to be as flexible as we could be. So those who had you know, other other commitments, whether that was caring commitments or education commitments, we absolutely said, no, you know, home comes first, work comes second. And I think, you know, that caused us some challenges, but I think it was the right thing to do with our team, but also kudos with the team in terms of, you know, they felt that they'd been treated fairly and supported through that. So we very much did that. We then also, we sort of communicated right the way through constantly telling people where we were, what we were thinking about, what was going on in the business, but also what our plans were for coming back to the office, et cetera. Mm. So, you know, a, a much greater level of, of team communication than we had before. And I think people also got a massive sense of personal commitment and, and, and achievement from working in the healthcare space during this time. Now, in no way are we trying to say that Assure people were on the front line because clearly they weren't. But I think our team really did feel they, you know, they had a part to play. It was a, it was a background part, but you know, they were there to help the clinicians and you know, help people sort of set up vaccination centres, for example, you know, to, to repurpose space, to install intercoms and GPs. You know, they, they had a role. I think the team really felt 
that they made a positive contribution. And, and I think that was that was really important to them. And as a business, right at the start, we made a big commitment. So we launched what we call our community fund. Right at the start of the pandemic, we raised some equity from our investors. And we said, right, from the money we're raising, we're putting two and a half million pounds into a community fund to support our patients and to support their communities. And I think both the team, investors, and clearly the NHS have responded incredibly positively to that gesture. Uh, and that's a commitment we've got going forward. We're continuing to support that as, as we move forward. Excellent. I mean, th- there's a lot of people getting very excited about life sciences now, um, mm-hmm. obviously slightly different from GP surgeries, but similar sport, maybe not quite the same ballpark, but, but you know, involves, involves a similar shaped object yeah. in terms of healthcare, right? Is there an area, is there an opportunity, do you think, for you to expand into these sorts of facilities where we're talking about labs, research centers? Because in the States, a lot of these assets coexist, don't they, in terms of hospitals, healthcare, research, and it's very much on on single sites in in many cases perhaps that's due to the, the having more land having bigger cities but clearly there's a hell of a lot of investor appetite for life sciences for r&d medical device manufacturing or you know every single shade of it do you think there's a there's is there an opportunity for you to use the, the you know the two and a half billion pound footprint you've already got mm-hmm. and to maybe expand into some of these peripheral areas, parallel areas rather? Yeah. So I mean, I mean, life sciences is clearly a very uh, hot area at the moment, and and we've got a massive shortage in the UK of quality facilities in the right locations, and they have to be co-located to the to the research universities for the trained staff that they need to operate them. So that's driving very high prices in that area. So is that an exciting area for us? It's a very keenly priced one at the moment, so it's difficult to see an immediate entry point. But longer term, this idea of a campus, does that make sense? I, I, you know, I, I think it does make a lot of sense to have these facilities more interwoven and, and, and closely co-located. And clearly, if that scenario happens, then there is an opportunity for us. But it's probably unlikely that we're going to go out and buy a big campus in Cambridge tomorrow, I would say. But you know, it's but you never say never in this game. We're always looking at opportunities. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And before we go, Jonathan, give us a bit of background into into yourself. So you came in, you were previously the CFO. How did you end up at Assura? What were some of the drivers that landed you into the real estate sector? Yes, I've been working in real estate for a number of years before Assura. So I was um, working for a business called Brooks McDonald, which is a wealth management business. And they had a fund management arm that that I was involved with all kinds of different esoteric sort of property investments really interesting lots of different really interesting people lots of interesting asset classes you know some great opportunities to to um you know explore new areas so really interesting role but but i had i had the good fortune to meet graham roberts the 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 late ceo who was the ceo before me who who tragically died of of cancer far too young uh three years ago but he had he was uh, just joined assurer and he was looking to do a turnaround the business had lost its way uh, had become in love with the stock market, but it had a fantastic position in the market. I mean, the, the property characteristics, you, you've, you've said yourself, that they're so compelling, but we'd lost that connection with our investors for whatever reason, and we'd lost that capacity for further growth. And, and he sold me you know, an opportunity to get involved with a business that had fantastic values, had a, an ability to make a contribution to society and to the NHS, and also you know, massive commercial potential. Definitely the best career decision I've ever made to join Graham and, and join the board. And it's been a fantastic journey for eight years. And we now, you know, we sit here, you know, with a two and a half billion pound portfolio, a really, but with a really strong ethos about, we strongly believe that we have a responsibility 
to drive social impact wherever we can. We, t- we take that really seriously. Mm. And we have a fantastic opportunity working with the NHS. So, you know, really, really delighted with the prospects. Yeah. So, and where, where next for you, Jonathan? You've obviously had a cracking impact in healthcare. Would you like to, would you like to go back to any other sectors? You, you've had spells in, in PwC, in, in Vodafone, historically. What would you like to be doing as your next... Uh, as, as your next role? Yeah, well, I mean, I, there's, there's still an awful lot to do here. You know, it's a fantastic opportunity. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great space for us to continue exploring and there's a long runway in front of us. There's no immediate pressure to do anything else. I'm also lucky enough to have two other roles. So, so I'm involved with the BPF and I'm also chair of the Northwest Business Leadership Team, which is a business promoting the Northwest as, as a place to do business, to act as a champion for my region and promote you know, Manchester in the Northwest as a place to, to live and work is something I absolutely love doing. Uh, and we also, at our heart, have a real passionate belief in the positive role business can play. So if I can carry on adding to that and, and contributing in a small way, then then that's a, that's a great opportunity for me. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much, Jonathan Murphy, CEO of Assura. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast. We've got some fantastic guests coming up. Please do get in touch if you'd like to suggest anybody. Uh, and if you've got any ideas or feedback, please do send us an email or, or, or drop us a line on, on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever you'd like to use. Please subscribe to Propcast on Spotify, on Apple. You can just search Propcast uh, and please stick to propertyweek.com for uh, for the articles and, and further news that comes with all of these episodes. But thanks a lot for listening. Cheers to Jonathan Murphy uh, and we'll see you again very soon. Thank you. Bye.